Hey, what's going on, folks? Before we get into the interview, I just want to take one more second to thank my guest, Maggie Freeling. Um, I had such a great time interviewing her. She's a funny and awesome person and just a really talented and thoughtful journalist. But just as a heads up, this was the first interview that I've done over the phone. So the audio gets a little wonky in spaces, but the conversation was still amazing. Um, I just wanted to give people a heads up to encourage you to just kind of power through those spots and um, enjoy the interview. I hope to have her on again in the future because there's so much we didn't get to talk about. But uh, yeah, uh, just a, just a quick little heads up about the audio, some 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 uh, some shaky spots here and there, but still a great conversation. And uh, enjoy. My guest today is a journalist and producer of a multitude of podcasts aimed at criminal justice reform and highlighting the humanity of a population of people that have been vilified and in a lot of cases wrongfully castigated by society. Among those podcasts are the incredibly captivating Murder and Alliance and the award-winning Suave. I could go on and on about her impressive resume, but if I did, we'd probably never get to the actual interview. The Podcaster Studio is proud to welcome Maggie Freeling. Maggie, Hello. Alvin, hello. It's been a while and I'm so excited to be here. It is it is it has been a while and not only has it been a while, this will be the longest conversation that we have had. Um when we did meet, it was it was very brief. Uh it, it was over like shots. Drunk. Yeah, it was like it was over shots <laughs> and like music and stuff. So this will be a very this this is a formal welcome and a formal hello to to us both and I'm very happy that we could do it. Likewise, I'm very excited. Yes. Now, um, you are fresh from vacation, still smelling like vacation. Um, <laughs> what what is yes. what is new? Much earned. You, you've been you, you burn the candle at both ends. I see you every week. There's a new podcast, a new this, a new investigation. So I'm glad to hear that you went and got some vacation time in. Where'd you go and how was it? Thank you. Yes, this was an actual vacation. This was not me going away. You know, trying to mix vacation with work, getting interviews in. I went to Puerto Rico with like 50 friends. Oh, we wow. went to a big music festival. Um, it was debaucherous. I have lost my voice. So I'm in trouble working right now. <laughs> I can't record. Um, and I have to say, if anyone allows me into a bar in the next month, that should be illegal. So that's wow. the status I'm at. And I'm excited <laughs> to be talking to you. Um, well, mission accomplished then for vacation. I mean, you checked all the things that I would think <laughs> for my vacation, I, I would want to hit all those marks for sure. Um, exactly. and I, I'm so I'm glad you had fun. Um, what's on the agenda other than, you know, uh, rec recovering, it sounds like, like what, what, what do you got on the docket once you are uh, back up and running? Yeah. So I have now started a new podcast. Of course. Um, we announced it. I'm not sure if you're, if you have heard, No, I have. but I have, you very, have, I'm okay, very so excited. I have, <laughs> I love Jason. I've signed on with um, the Wrongful Conviction Lava for Good Network with Jason Flom. Yes. So Jason and I are now partnering um, because, as we all know, there are too many wrongful conviction cases out there and too much for me and Jason to each do on our own. So we are teaming up. We're going to cover them. Um, and so I'm doing that. And it's it's really been fabulous. Yeah, I'm, I'm I really am in awe of a lot of the work that the innocence project does. And that's how I found out about Jason Flom. I don't know if he works with them directly, but I, I've all, I've seen him do so many interviews where he is bringing on people who have been 
you know, set free, exonerated and talking about their stories mm-hmm. and stuff. And that's how he got on my radar. And same with you, obviously. And I will, I didn't want to get into your part that you played in this podcast so early, but it, it, it's just naturally going that way. I, I'm going to get it out of the way early so we can just get right to the interview stuff. I, I didn't get to properly thank you in Austin, but, uh-huh. but I don't know what made you reach out to us and, you know, suggest that we, that we go to crime con. It, it came out of nowhere, but it really was like this. It was like this kick in the ass that we needed to, to like, reach out and meet new people in the space and do all that stuff. And we wouldn't have done that if you hadn't reached out and said anything. So again, I don't know what made you do it, but, <laughs> but, but it is much appreciated. It, it really uh, made us kick things. Well, I don't even year. remember how we started talking, but I do remember once, sorry, let me say that again. Cause I dropped something. Um, I don't remember how we started talking, but I do remember once we did, I was obviously obsessed with you guys. I mean, you're hilarious and wonderful and a great okay, human. Right, so, okay. you know, I just the, the wanted to do what I could to. Yeah, I just wanted to do what I could to, you know, to support you guys and lift you up. And, you know, something we did talk about is how few people of color are in the in in the true crime space. And so. You know, it it was a bonus. It was like, this guy is awesome. He's got a great podcast. He's trying to do good. I mean, the two of you. And, you know, we need more people like them in this space. So I, I'm so glad that that worked out for you guys. And I've seen some of these interviews you're getting and they're huge. So congratulations. You guys are you guys are killing it. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So enough of that. There will be more compliments, I'm sure, <laughs> throughout the interview. But let's let's go ahead and dive into things. Maggie, I like to start where everything starts, which is at the beginning. And so I would like to ask you, uh, where were you born? I was born on Long Island. Uh, I was born in Sound Beach, New York, which is like way out on the east end on the beach. Um, and I grew up in Port Jefferson, New York, which is also on the water. And so what would you say that Long Island did in shaping who you are? Wow. Long Island. (laughs) Really, um, you know, growing up, I was very aware that growing up in Port Jeff, that's a pretty rich community. um, I was very aware of my income status as a not wealthy person and just like a pretty fairly, I guess, compared to the rest of the country, I grew up in a pretty upper middle class family. But in that town, we were actually pretty lower class, middle class. compared to the people I was around. So, you know, I was always just aware of, of that, um, growing up, you know, not with a lot of money and growing up around people who had that. And especially growing up in a very white area, I was very in tune to, you know, the five Dominican kids that were in school with us, literally five out of my entire school. There was very few people of color, very few Asian folks, you know, it was white, rich people. Yeah. Um, and that just always was something I thought about, you know, when you're 15, you're not thinking it a bit in a critical race theory way, but it was just something that, you know, was there. And I always wanted to get out. I always wanted to get out of that space and go where, you know, things were not as conservative, not as wealthy, more diverse. Um, and that's what I did. I actually wound up in Western Massachusetts, where if anybody knows, that's a very liberal, queer, gay. The city I was in is actually known as the lesbian capital. So I wound up, you know, leaving this very buttoned up, stifled up, racist ass conservative place to go somewhere 
the complete opposite. Yeah. Um, and that, that really formed me. You know, I think I was less formed by growing up on Long Island and more formed by the Western Mass experience in terms of comparing them. Yeah. And just the people I knew in Western Massachusetts compared to the people I knew on Long Island. Yeah, that's an interesting way for that to 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 play out because, um, like for me, I have people. There are people in my family might be career criminals or do you know little petty petty crimes and stuff like that. And for some people that grow up in an environment like that, they might follow suit. And then other people go, "Well, I'm gonna not do that because I saw where it could lead you to." And it sounds like you growing up on Long Island and seeing the conservativeness and the you know the judgment and racism or whatever you that you saw you instead of it making you that it made you the opposite so that's that's cool that's so it did shape you in a way you know in a way it It did it just made me feel like this is so homogenous you know like i just that was not for me um and you know not saying western mass is particularly diverse in terms of you know race and ethnicity but it was definitely more welcoming you know i went to a school where we talked about those things um and that that's really where I got, you know, this this passion for journalism and, and thinking about all these kids I grew up with, you know, who were not as privileged as some other kids in school and what that was like for them. And I just always wanted to do better. You know, I just I just saw growing up like that and thought we can do better. We can do better for people, for kids, for everybody. For sure. <laughs> what would be young Maggie's response if someone asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up? I always wanted to be an English literature professor. Oh. I don't know why. <laughs> I just wait. So, like, at, 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 as a child specifically, that I was mean, your response. We'd have to ask my mother. I don't. I really don't know if I had answers. Maggie, that's but such like, a specific, <laughs> such a specific answer to like. As I a, don't know. I don't. I don't remember a bus driver being, or something. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't remember ever being like. Yeah, I'm going to be a doctor, you know, like I, because especially because every kid I grew up with, their parents were doctors and anesthesiologists, Mm. like that's how I grew up. And both of my parents were public school teachers. So, you know, again, I I was very aware of of the privilege other people had. And um, so I guess teaching was something I wanted to do. And uh, my grandfather is actually also an English professor. And since both of my parents were public school teachers, I guess that was on my mind. Um, But my mom very quickly was like, look, teaching these days, especially public school, like that's a fucking rough ass career. Like teachers are underpaid. There's attack on public schools as we can see now. Um, So, you know, as I grew and went to college, I did go to be an English major. And very quickly realized I absolutely did not want to do that. It was fun. It was lovely. I got to study, you know, uh, dystopian societies sure. was what I was focusing on. Yeah. Um, Classic. Victorian <laughs> literature, which is very dystopian and as well as like sci-fi dystopian. Yeah. Classic. Right. Um, and once I got to having to do creative writing, I realized that in terms of that kind of creativity, I was not like that. That's not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to write fiction. And that's where I made the switch to, okay, well, how do I keep writing? How do I keep doing these things, but doing it for a greater good and to help? And journalism, 
So yes. very quickly, I switched to doing journalism. Well, I think you chose the right path because, I mean, we don't need another 1984. Like, the world's dystopian enough. <laughs> you can just tell the truth about the real dystopian world that we live in. You don't need to make right. Well, that's exactly that's what's so fucked up. It's like you know, I studied all of these dystopian, utopian societies, and I'm like, hold on, we are living this. Yeah. And that's also what's crazy about growing up on Long Island is, growing up, I didn't realize how conservative it was, just because sixteen year olds aren't particularly thinking about politics. Yeah. Um, but Trump actually, that was one of the places that he rallied specifically went to was. Suffolk County, Long Island, where I grew up. Um, and, you know, that was a big, like, eye-opener for me. Like, oh, my God, I really did grow up in this, like, fucked up, like, bizarre, conservative, like, what you think of Trumpers is where I grew up. Like, when you say conservative, I'm picturing, like, a, a guy in a truck that blows a bunch of black smoke and he's yelling slurs out of the truck and kicking kids' signs. Which is signs exactly or, you know. what I was talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> but, like, but conservative is, that, that's such a, that's like, seems like a chill word to describe that person. Is like, I feel like we need something, like, you know, something like, better. yeah, something more Mad oh, max yeah, I'm you know? totally thinking of the guys in, like, insane, like, bro, how small is your dick trucks yeah. with, like, Punisher stickers everywhere and like trump 2024 like exactly what i'm talking about when mm. i say <laughs> i got the imagery very well but i'm like we'll, we'll work we'll, we'll work we'll workshop a word uh, later on the ability to ask questions is the greatest source in learning the truth uh, that's a quote from carl young renowned psychiatrist and the founder of analytical psychology and maggie what i wanted to ask you was like at what age did you start the inquisitive path that led you down the doorstep of journalism. I now I know that you said, you know, you always wanted to be an English professor, but like at, at some point you went to college and you were like, this isn't for me. And then you made the switch. But what? Okay. So again, you're not going to believe me, but okay. when I was, when I was six, child, I wanted to be a journalist. I was a child legitimately. My mother was like, you didn't shut the fuck up. Like, all you would do is ask questions, like everything. Like, mom, why is this this? She's like, oh, my God. Well, my daughter just shut the fuck up constantly. A little, notepad, a little notepad, a magnifying glass. Yeah, yes. I was two <laughs> with a notepad. Um, no, but I was always just very, like, I think for worse now because I was freaking jaded by 17. But, like, you know, just very inquisitive and very adult and wanted to know everything about the world and just asking questions. Um, I, I think it was just always inherently there. there. It was there. And I think, you know, no one told me to do it. No one said, Hey, you ask a lot of questions. You should be a journalist. It just came to me. It was just natural. And um, it was the best thing I ever did because yeah, I really just asked too many questions. Like you could ask my partner, he hates me. He'll go out <laughs> one night and I'm like, it's just very, it's just me. I'm not like, you know, inquiring for any reason. Other yeah. than like, Oh, what'd you do? Who were you with? What'd you talk about? Oh my God. Then what time did you leave? <laughs> it's like, he's like, are you stalking me? Or I'm like, no, I literally just need to know everything. I just love time. questions, this man. Just love questions. Love questions. <laughs> love answers more, but I will ask questions. So how difficult was it for you to define your journalistic intention? Right. I mean, like you're cool. You look badass you're pretty. And while these things sound like compliments, like for what you do, I'm sure there were like offers and opportunities that were like technically journalism, but maybe not at all fulfilling. Like, like for example, like 
there's a Grand Canyon of a of of a level of importance in you know being a correspondent at the Blue Ridge Rock Festival at, or at Governor's Ball or something and doing what you do, you know. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, so I started my I started journalism, um, and my first internship. So again, I was in Western Massachusetts, which for a lot of you who don't know. Again, very, very hippie, very liberal, like one of the most famous liberal arts colleges, Hampshire College is there. It's one of the ones where they don't give grades. You know, it's like very awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a very progressive liberal. I didn't go to that one. I went to UMass. I went to the 35,000 party school. But like (laughs) it is that area. So it's that vibe of just like everyone's chill. Everyone's a hippie. Um, So, you know, very quickly, I was looking for internships because in college we had to, and there was one that everyone pretty much knew about that was this reporting internship where they allowed their young ass reporters, I was 18, to travel. It was a travel company. So, you know, kind of back in the day when people would read travel reporting, I'm yeah. say back in the day, I'm talking 2009 or 10, I think this was. Yeah. You know, people would read, it was called Go Nomad, and people would go online and read articles about, you know, all these people who traveled and backpacked this place and kind of like a Frommers or whatever it was called. Um, so I did that, and I really, I was like, oh my God, I love traveling. I want to like be a travel journalist. Like, that would be awesome. Yeah. Like, you know, getting to just freaking get free trips everywhere. Hell Why yeah. not? So I did. I actually, my first article that I wrote, I was sent at 18 to backpack the Swiss Alps um, on a press trip. So they get all these journalists who are all writing for their own companies and it's a press trip and they take you on this tour. And I was 18. I was by far the youngest. The second youngest was 26. And (laughs) it was amazing. I freaking backpacked the Alps. And the whole um, press tour was backpack the Alps through three course meals and wine or something like that. Uh, nice. And I did it. It was amazing. It was cool. It was scary. I was 18 being sent somewhere to like professionally work with adults. Like I was a child, but like they totally took me in. It was wonderful. But I got back and was like, you know, as I continued working in journalism, I had some mentors. Um who are much more political, much more radical. And I started learning from them. One of my mentors was Middle Eastern and started learning from him and thinking about the world and was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, Mm. this is the same thing I ran from, just writing articles for rich people who can afford to do a trip like this. Yeah, wow. And uh, that's that's really where I kind of made that switch. Like, yeah, it was great. It was great to get sent to the Alps, but you know, now I get sent to Brownsville, Texas to report on the border crisis. So I kind of was able to combine them, but do something that made me feel good for, for people. For sure. Yeah. No. It, and it, it really, it does sound like, I mean, as much as you have found a way to be the antithesis of it, like everything kind of comes back to Long Island, you know, like it's like, you know, even you went and did this amazing experience and it reminded you of how, this isn't what you wanted. This is what you're running away from is this cushy, you know, right. playing into people with that, you know, have affluence and, you know, or, you know, you wanted to find the real. So you know, it's yeah. so funny because I ask my mom this all the time. Cause you know, I'm getting so many interview requests and blah, blah, blah. And people are like, same questions. 
but right this one actually alvin i feel like i'm in a therapy session because now it's starting to make sense yeah, that's what that's what that's what <laughs> that's what that's my, what we do here yeah no it is this is to- a total therapy session because now i'm like okay this is making sense because i always ask my mom i'm like i don't remember ever sitting down with you and having like you know, critical race theory talks where you were like, don't be mean to this person because their skin color. Like, I don't remember that. But I was like, I did grow up like that. So something must have happened where I learned that. And I think now through this, you're you're le- right. I was just running from <laughs> everything Long Island was. Everything that was, I was like, I want the opposite of this. Um, yeah, because I can never pinpoint it. I, I could never be like, yeah, mom, it was that one conversation you had with me. And I'm sure there were, but none of them ring any bells particularly. Um, yeah. And she couldn't really remember either. She's like, I don't know. You just always like helping people. I was like, that's not helpful for an interview, mom. That's not <laughs> helpful. <laughs> people want answers. Yeah. You just, you, you absorbed it from the concrete of Long Island. Like that's, it was like, you, that's where you where you got all of that not liking that kind of energy from. Because you, 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 you probably, you know, subconsciously heard it, subconsciously felt it felt uncomfortable from as early as you could understand words, you know? Right. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for unpacking that for me. Yeah. So that's the end of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. I fixed you and uh, you're welcome. <laughs> no. So I owe you $300. Exactly. For this yes. Yes. This is brought to you by Talkspace. Um, so <laughs> now um, we touched on it a bit, but I w- I'm sure there's, there's something more specific there, but is there a specific moment that, that sparked your, your passion for criminal justice reform and helping tell the stories of the wrongfully convicted? Like, was there a specific story you heard or did it just, you just, it just, the path that you took led you to, to learning about this thing? Yeah, it was, it was absolutely the path. Um, but the path was pretty structured. I never knew I'd wind up here. But when I left, when I decided I needed to get out of Western Mass, because again, Western Mass started getting a little too homogenous. I was like, I'm going to go back to New York. I'm going to go to the city. And so I was looking for places in the city. And, and, you know, now I have a journalism degree. And the first place that found like, seemed like something I wanted to work at. Again, this is the dawning of multimedia this we're talking 2011 2012 mm-hmm. um you know all of these little public uh, online blogs and publications were like big things then so i found this one called women's e-news and it was a lot of female reporters who were reporting on women's issues around the globe okay and i was like this is fucking awesome like this is what i wanted to do like I want to report on women's issues. I want to talk about them, not even just here in the U.S. Like I remember talking about um, female genital mutilation in Africa, like just talking about all these issues, reporting on these issues. So I went to New York. I did that and um, met amazing people. And then, gosh, where did I go from there? Must have had a few internships, did a freelance reporting, and then found myself back at grad school because... Now we're talking 2014 where multimedia was really a thing. Everyone wanted journalists to not only do print, but podcasts weren't a thing yet, by the way. Podcasting is not a thing. Yes. So they wanted journalists to be able to shoot videos because Facebook's a thing. And they wanted to start like getting those kinds of videos. I was like, all right, I don't know how to do any of this shit. I'm a writer. I'm going to go back to grad school and learn 
how to do multimedia. Mm. And in grad school is where I got really interested in criminal justice um, because there were so many amazing classes I could take there about all these topics. There's international reporting, you know, there was uh, war reporting, you know, there's all these kinds of amazing classes at the journalism school I went to. Um, and, and that's really where my passion for criminal justice was founded. And then from there, I went to um, NPR's Latino USA. And that's where I wound up in detention reporting, DHS, DOJ, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a that's a journey and a half. And <laughs> it doesn't feel like it when I think about it. But, but when you lay it out, <laughs> when you lay it out, it, it, it's it's for sure a journey. And you know what? It's it's interesting because you bring up a good point. In 2014, it it doesn't feel long ago, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it was almost a decade ago, right? And it's it's interesting how podcasting has changed the landscape of everything in the in the same regard that you know everybody used to do TV to do right. to get movies. Like you do TV if you're doing a TV show, it's like small. And you want to be in the movies, but now it's like flipped and everybody wants to be on a, a series and, you know, get a Netflix deal or whatever. It's like really flipped. And in just and under a decade, the idea of podcasting not existing. And then now, like if you're a journalist, podcasting is f- for a lot of people a more successful route to take than trying to get a, a TV show or a, some kind of web series or something like that. Like it's it's a more viable option for a lot of people. So like how did you make the transition? You know, cause I know you were doing TV and you probably right. still do TV, but I'm, but like you do a bunch of podcasts. So, so like yeah. when, when did the, was it unjust and unsolved? Was that your first podcast? I mean, I'm sure you've guessed it, but like that was your first podcast. So no, because I was working in public radio. So yes. So right, yes. Okay, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I was doing a lot of broadcast. Yeah. Yeah. However, so this is what happened while I was in undergrad. 2009 I took a podcasting class oh, wow. podcasting was it existing that people it it was I don't even think this American life really existed yet we should definitely check this we do a quick google because I remember one time finding the podcasting timeline of like which big ones because of course serial was obviously the one that put everything on the map but before that there was like this American life and other radio shows that had turned into this new thing called podcasting. Yeah. And I remember in undergrad taking a podcasting class and the entire class was done in garage band. Um, so it was I'm really still funny. Doing it out of garage band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it was, it, it existed. So it was something I had thought about. I was listening to radio shows like this American life. And, and so when serial came out, like I was already on that, like I, that was on my radar. That was something I was interested in. I was just entering grad school. Cause I think serial came out in 2014 and I entered grad school in 2014. So when I entered the program, you had the option of, you know, which path do you want to take? Do you want to do broadcast? Do you want to do print reporting? Do you want to do, audio report there was many tracks you could take yeah and i actually started off in broadcast i was like i love videography i want to be a documentary filmmaker is actually what i wanted to do and that got old really quick um (laughs) because i'm really small and when you're carrying around giant c100 cameras and lighting and all this fucking (laughs) bullshit by yourself to a shoot 
I like fell down the subway stairs one day with all of this equipment and was like, I hate my life. What am I doing? And I switched to audio and I was like, wow, all I have to do is have a little recorder and a microphone and I could go wherever, whenever, not have to have lighting, not have (laughs) to have cameras. And that was where I made that switch to audio. Um, And I had always done audio. And so the TV stuff that you're thinking about came while I was already doing audio. And it was actually a very big decision for me to decide if I even wanted to do that because it wasn't the path I was on. I was very on this path of, you know, I want to be a podcaster. I want to be an NPR journalist. Um, So when I got offered to do the Maura Murray documentary, it took me a very long time to try and decide like, okay, well, if I do that, where is my audio career going to go? Mm. Um, turns out you could do both. Yeah. So that was exciting. Fun. Also fun fact. <laughs> uh, the first episode of this American life debuted in November of 1995. It was a, it was a radio show that turned yeah. into a podcast in 2014. So yeah. I yes. Mean, Okay, around the same time go. as Serial. So podcasting really blew up in 2014. Yeah. And you were on it like Bitcoin. You were like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, this is a thing that everybody, it's like nobody knows about it yet, but I'm going to go ahead and go down this path. So yeah, you were, you were on right. it. And I on did it because of that random garage band quote podcast class that I took in undergrad in 2009. So something must've been happening where they knew it was like a thing, but I'm going to have to research this. Yeah. You do a lot of stuff and you got more stuff coming down the pipeline and it's been a, it's been an interesting couple of years. Um, I feel like I don't remember what year it was. I think it was 2019. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was 2020, but um, when the Central Park five show came out uh-huh. and we really got this example of like collective sorrow of people who had, who didn't know this was going on, you know, who people who were plugged into the matrix didn't right. have an experience this part of life and, 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 you know, miscarriages of justice. So it was this shot people. I, I remember getting phone calls from people uh-huh. and people, you know, oh, I had to take a break. It was a very, for people who had no idea that this kind of stuff happens every day, it was, it really hit people. And like, I felt like the mm-hmm. whole world and the whole country felt this, man, I can't believe this type of stuff is happening. And then there was a whole yeah. other side of people who they're like, this is, this is every, this is every day. <laughs> And right. for you, I was like, you, you deal directly with people who are currently living out some version of what happened to the Central Park Five or the West Memphis Three. You deal with that on yep. a regular basis. I mean, like, it, it's your career. So, you yep. know, obviously, Puerto Rico, that's that's an example. But, like, how do you recap? How do you recalibrate from the weight of that? Or, or like, do you have to? I mean, obviously, you have to because you just got back from Puerto Rico and you don't have a voice <laughs> and all that stuff. But, like, is there, like, a smaller version of things that you do to kind of you know, readjust? There's, I'm going to say this really quickly. So <laughs> I am a journalist by nature and yes, I'm a podcaster, but I definitely distinguish myself as a journalist. And there is a reason one of the highest alcoholic professions is journalism mm. because of the stuff that we see and do and, and deal with um, on a daily basis. Um, you know, it's funny. I was in Puerto Rico and I went to the bar where Hunter S. Thompson wrote the rum diaries. Mm. So, you know, there, there's a reason for these things, but, um, yes, it's, it's really hard, especially when you're working with and connecting with incredibly vulnerable people, which I was doing when I was doing the detention center reporting. 
However, their access to the outside world is not, is virtually non-existent slash not as connected as people in the Department of Justice prison system. So working in wrongful convictions has been amazing because of the people I get to meet. Every one of these people truly inspires me with their resilience. You know, I go through a breakup and I lose my mind for two months and can't even exist. And they're spending, you know, an infinite amount of time and, and undetermined amount of time locked away from the world. So talking to them is so inspiring and beautiful and wonderful and grounds me. But at the same time, it is genuinely devastating. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, to talk to them. And then it's especially heartbreaking when, you know, they want to hear about your life. And I'm like, I don't feel comfortable talking about my life because I don't want to tell you about the really nice steak dinner I ate and, you know, yeah. the, the happiness I'm having on vacation. Like, those are the things that make me really, like, feel terrible, um, even though it actually makes them feel happy. They want to hear about these things. The other thing that makes me, you know, particularly struggle with it is when I can't answer the phone, when I'm dealing with my own, you know, personal issues. Yeah. And I see a call from a friend in prison who deals with shit every day. And I'm like, for my mental health, I can't answer the phone. It's the same with anybody. My yeah. friend's calling, can't answer the phone right now. But when one of those people calls, it's such a different kind of guilt and like, God, I want to answer this and be there for you, but like I can't even be there for myself right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's that's really a kind of struggle I don't know how to put into words because I feel disappointed in myself. I feel like I'm disappointing them, but at the same time, answering six or seven prison calls a day from people I've connected with, yeah, also just derails you from work. It yes. derails you from a lot of things. I can't take that many phone calls normally. So long answer to your question. Yes, there's a lot that I need to um, de-internalize. I don't know if there's a word for that. A lot I need to... That's the word. That's the word. We'll go with that word. <laughs> sure. <laughs> a lot I need to just work on. Um, and yeah, taking vacations just Luckily, iPhone just came out with this new, uh, you can like mute phone calls from specific people and not like block them, but you could put on like a favorites list and you're yeah. only going to get phone calls and text messages. That has actually saved me some sanity. Like some days I'm like, you know what? Can't take the call today. Don't even want to see that they called because it'll put me into a spiral because I'll feel guilty for not taking it. So that has actually saved me that that <laughs> new iPhone setting has really helped iphone um, iphone strikes again yeah right one of the good things they've done uh, <laughs> for me yeah. at least it's funny it sounds like you're in the process of recalibrating you know like it sounds like you might not yeah. have even really figured it out yet no because that you know that's 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 a lot and and i respect what you do so much and the idea that you know you can't if you're always on 25%, you, you can't really, you don't have anything to give to anybody. So you gotta, exactly. you gotta, you gotta find time to recharge, you know, you know, so. It, it, yeah. I do. It's hard. And, um, you know, you know, Jason, who I was talking about, he, um, 
it's similar. I think he recharges a lot more because there's a lot more money to recharge <laughs> and go to the Hamptons and do whatever he's got to do and a lot more assistance. But like, yeah, it's definitely hard. It's definitely hard because both of us don't just parachute journalism in. And that's a term in the industry where journalists, you know, we see it all the time in war reporting and whatever they parachute in to a crisis don't know the people, don't know what's going on, come in and then leave. And it's like, we're not like that. We don't just come into your life and then disappear. We're here for you. You're not just a story for us. We're support. We are trying to help you. Um, I connect with these people. And and maybe, maybe that's just because me and Jason are bleeding hearts. A lot of people don't do that. A lot of journalists absolutely do not do that. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's my own mistake for really connecting on that level where it's like, yeah, call me whenever you want. I'm here for you. Um, yeah, but I, I don't. But that's the I, way yeah. it is. I don't. And yeah, and and I don't like the word mistake because you are you are it it is it might the only person it really is a mistake to is like your own sanity. But like, well, the, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because like <laughs> what you are doing is the right way to do it. I remember when um when Freddie Gray was killed here in Baltimore, yeah. and um there were all these uprisings and stuff and. The one thing I heard so much was like, you know, get the fuck out of here. So to, to journalists who was like, it's clear that you just pulled up in your van to yep. get the picture of the video of CVS on fire and ask like gotcha questions to people. And yep. it, you don't really care. And you're going to leave when the when the fires go out and you're not coming back to follow up and see how people are doing in the aftermath of this. And I think that there's a genuineness about you and you can, you can feel it when you're around you. And so it helps you when you do your job, you know, like people, people it know that you're not a, you're help. not a bull, you're not a bullshitter. Exactly. I mean, it definitely helps because people open up to me knowing that I'm not going to take advantage of them. And, and there's also times where I feel like I'm being a bad journalist because, you know, there's codes of ethics you're supposed to live by. Um, and I talk about this a lot in my classes, you know, Technically, I should not be putting money on their commissary as a journalist. You know, that's considered a favor for an interview. You don't pay mm. for interviews. Um, I will say I've never put money on somebody's commissary before the interview. Sure. Afterwards, I build relationships. But, um, you know, there's things like that where I'm like, uh, if I went to the New York Times, they may never hire me because of some of these these things that I've done that are considered not particularly ethical by journalistic standards. I will, um, because of the precariousness of the situation where people are fighting for their lives in the courts, anything they say can really fuck up their situation. I let people say, Hey, you know what? I said that to you. Can you not report that? Mm. Which most journalists don't do. You sat down with me. That was on record. I can put out whatever I want to put out. Um, in this situation with these people, I don't live like that. I don't want to do or put out anything that will hurt them. I, I tell them not to say things specifically that could hurt them. I will ask a question and say, if you don't want to answer that, do not answer that. Like I make sure I'm very fair and diplomatic, but I think that a lot of journalists don't do that because of the way we were all taught not 
to do that. You're not supposed to share a script with somebody. You're not supposed to share the questions beforehand. Mm. I do these things because of how precarious this is. I let the lawyer say, you know what? You're not putting that in. And like, that is very much a no-no in journalism to let somebody see what you're writing and tell you what to put in or not put in. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard, but I'm happy because at the end of the day, I don't give a shit if you think I'm a good journalist or not. If this helps somebody, that's what I care about. And that's what, you know, and that's like, that's the core of it. You know, you're talking to people right. that have real things going on. And you don't want them to self-incriminate or say something that could mess up their chances to have something positive. Vulnerable people, very vulnerable people. Um, Always, you know, the people, the women I've talked to in detention, the people I've talked to waiting at the border, these are all vulnerable people. Journalists often um, always demand a first and last name. Um, They rarely report on Anon- I can't even say the word uh, anonymously. Yeah. They really report anonymously. But I'm somebody who, you know, if I know you're a person, I got your name, I got your phone number, I'm not making up who you are, and you're in a very precarious situation, whether it's crossing the border and you don't want immigration to know your name, I will redact those things. And um, again, some journalists don't do that. Mass incarceration is a symptom of a larger problem, which I call America's isms. Classism, racism, and capitalism are the driving forces behind our broken justice system. That's a quote from Susan Burton. She's an advocate for the New Way of Life Reentry Project. And I just wanted to know, like, what are your thoughts when you hear that? I 5,000% agree. 5,000 million percent agree. Um... I think so much of this country is broken, um, but mass incarceration, I think it's one of the biggest problems that we have. I think, you know, there's, there's poverty, there's, you know, being rights taken away from people left and right and mass incarceration, which is the umbrella of everything from racism, sexism, classism, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And it's, it's a problem that, is not being a, it's not being treated like a problem. It just is a system that exists, and uh-huh. we just try to find ways to finagle the system with new new laws. And, and it really seems like at this point, it's pretty clear that the whole thing needs to be overhauled. There's no patch for it. There is no patch because yeah. the system isn't broken. It's created exactly the way it was designed to That's to disenfranchise the already disenfranchised people. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, That's how it was created. It's doing exactly what and it's supposed to do. It's, it took me a while to realize that because when I started it, you know, I was one of those people like we could change the system and it's just not working right. And then having so many mentors be like, oh no, it's working exactly how it was set up to work. Um, It is set up to make sure that once you are convicted of something, you're not getting out of prison. Hmm. The convictions are made to be final. Um, whether that was thought in the past that we would wrongfully convict somebody or not, convictions are not made to be overturned. And that's why once you're convicted of something, it is the biggest uphill battle for you, for, for, for your life, um, because it's not meant to be overturned. 
So um, uh, what I like to do here at the Podcaster Studio is I have a questionnaire that was made famous by Mr. Bernard Pivot and uh, was, you know, the lineage of it was carried on by James Lipton on Inside the Actor Studio. So it's a, it's a, it's a series of questions. I ask you the question, you just, you just fire off whatever comes to mind. And, uh, you know, so um, I'm, I'm, ready oh whenever, I'm ready whenever you are. I'm ready. Let's see where this goes. Okay. So what is your favorite word, English major? Oh, my gosh. Noodle. Noodle's a fun word. <laughs> okay. All right, cool. No, that's a great word. <laughs> what, <laughs> what did you say? What did you expect me to say? I don't I don't know. <laughs> Something much, much more intelligent. Than sure. Noodle. <laughs> I, I don't know what I thought, but it wasn't that. And I and I love it. That's great. <laughs> it's, it's a great. It's a fun word to say. Uh, what is your least favorite word? Moist and panties. Oh, and they yeah. could be combined in any. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. Gotcha. <laughs> um, what is a quality you love in people? <sighs> Loyalty is so important to me. It's a good one. What is a quality you hate in people? Flakiness. Um, yeah could encompass a lot of things but but flaky people people who can't be on time yeah. people who can't people who figure flaky, their shit out just, their skin comes off yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly people whose skin's peeling exactly yeah. <laughs> um totally joking about that yes yeah, so, peeling is okay <laughs> well I mean, listen, listen listen if you got a sunburn get, get it taken care of you know when it starts peeling we don't need to be hanging out that's just that's me that's maggie I'll didn't see, say that i said that i said it <laughs> that's what i'm saying to all of my friends after puerto rico but when your skin stops flaking, we can hang out. Yeah, I don't want that, don't want that in my daiquiri. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what sound or noise do you love? Sound or noise. Rain. Love rain. Love thunderstorms. That's a good one. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, any, I mean, most people hate nails on a chalkboard. I do not like when people eat and they pull their teeth on their silverware. Like oh, that clanking of the teeth. Like they scrape the fork. Yes. Why are you doing that? Are you hanging out? With, you you the, hang out with a lot of barbarians, huh? Uh, yes. Yeah, apparently. I'm like, why is the fork touching your teeth? Yeah. Like we have don't. That's that's I didn't know you were hanging out with Vikings, Maggie. Uh, that's well, but, now you're going to hear this and you're going to be like, oh, my God, who are these people I'm hanging out? With? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, where's the suckiest place to get a tattoo? Mm. Okay. The knee was absolutely brutal. Okay. I almost passed out. Oh, wow. Um, it took me like three sessions. It was like really, really bad. That was probably in my worst spot. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Noted. What profession other than yours would you like to attempt? Okay. So this actually reminds me. I haven't. You're, this is exclusive. Okay. To you. Let's do it. This is Alvin. This is an exclusive. I'm remembering now. High school. I wanted to go into forensics and I took a forensics class. Oh man. Because was, I was always was, obsessed with true crime. So now I'm remembering be. my path. It was all meant forensics to be. Forensics was something I wanted to do. Yes. It, it was all, it was all meant to be. So that it would be that. Um, I think so. I think I would want to go into some sort of, um, you know, about the body farm at U10. Yeah, at U10. Yeah. Oh yeah. You, oh, I would yeah. love to just like go research like at the body farm and you're, do something in forensics like that. You're a true sicko. You're a true sicko. I am. I respect it. <laughs> <laughs> For that to be the one you go to, not like, you know, uh, rating resorts, you know, <laughs> just no, some job. That no. Is, no, I want to work no. at Body Farm. I want to find I out. am like really fascinated 
I don't even, I wouldn't even call it morbid. It's just science. Like I'm fascinated with um, bodies, medical anomalies, death, dying, like that kind of everything. We're all interested in true crime. Yeah. But I think the distinction is that like not thinking that that's morbid morbid and thinking that it's scientific is that's like a dividing line. Like it's like if you, if you can go, yeah, well, it's just, it's just a body. It's just a, Mm -hmm. it's just an organ. A lot of people can't do that. (laughs) And I'm one of those people. We're all organic and we all go back to the earth at the end. And I think it's like kind of a cool thing to study it in the body farm. Like when I found out about that, I was like, I need to be here. So literally for years, I've been trying to like figure out what kind of story I can do that I wind up on the body farm. Oh my God. Um, I'm, I'm getting close. It's going to happen. <laughs> it's, it's in the works. It's in the works. Um, yeah. <laughs> what profession would you never want to participate in? I know there's some, oh my God. Um, what I never want to do. What is yours? Oh, uh, working at a body farm. (laughs) 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 Sounds sounds like a nightmare to me. Or like being in Um, the uh, working at doing like embalming and stuff like that. Anything where you're in a basement and there's um, lifeless bodies around that you have to do stuff to is um, um, that's. Did I ever tell you my autopsy story? No, but if you have time, I'm I'm game. I have time. I'm ready to tell you this. This was this was one of the most exciting moments of my life, and this is where I was like yeah, maybe I'm a pretty cool person. I like, <laughs> I was doing a story and this is, I found this woman who works at the body farm. So I was like, okay, if I could get this story on her, I can get connected to the body farm. Yes. So I was doing a story on um, a man who disappeared in, um, on the, in Wisconsin, like on the lake, like Chicago, I forget which lake that is, Chicago Lake. Um, and so I was doing a story on him missing. I went to talk to the forensic anthropologist that actually like studied the bones of this person when they thought it was him. And I was like, well, can I come to the medical examiner's office and get, um, you know, sounds of an autopsy and stuff since I'm doing this whole story on you and your work as a forensic anthropologist. She's like, oh, hell yeah. Come down to comes out the medical examiner's office like it'll all be chill and i'm like yeah i watch enough like true crime shows and i've seen enough like forensic files yeah i could like totally see this body be dissected so i get there and then like the chief medical examiner is like okay we we actually do have a body today and i was like fuck yes we got a body today and they're like, it's actually an organ donation. So this will be interesting. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to get like audio sounds. I'm just going to like get my microphone in there, get the rib plates cracking, like the whole thing. And I did. However, the organ donation was the skin. The skin is apparently an organ oh, oh. we can donate. Oh, wow. I was unaware oh, of. Oh, what? Yes. Oh, and they flayed, they flayed this, this person? Or they flayed this body? Oh, did they? Oh, oh did they? I thought this was going to be a pretty standard, like, open up the chest plate. A heart. Cool shit. A kidney. Yeah, see some cool shit. No, 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 no. Also, this guy, the only reason his skin could be donated was because it was a motorcycle accident. Oh. And his entire insides exploded when he was hit by a car. Oh, you got to get the so, hell out of here. You got to get out of here, Maggie. That's, that's, that's insane. 
so I know when you're when you're like gonna throw up just like let me know but so I'm like oh fuck so they're like skinning this guy this like big ass like motorcycle dude and I'm like really getting sick and like dizzy and I'm like all right keep it cool keep it cool like you waited your life for this you could do this and then once they open him your organs rupture so one of your organs are your bowels Oh. So when they open him, oh the smell oh. was oh. something I hope nobody else except medical examiners and coroners have to smell. Just raw, and uncut like, shit. This is uncut shit. Um, raw. I am, yeah, no, I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm like dizzy. I'm going to puke. I'm like, this is so, oh. I got the sounds I needed to. I bet. But then they're all just hanging out in their heels looking like beautiful, you know, these hot ass medical examiners. I don't know what the hell was going on. They're all like gorgeous <laughs> women. And they're like, so tomorrow's taco party, Lisa, you're going to bring the tacos. And they're like oh, going through this guy's shit. And I'm like, taco party right now. We're talking about a taco party. So anyway. That was my, that was my autopsy story. No, that's great. Um, uh, you know, it was really traumatic. Yeah, <laughs> not I'm as, traumatized not as hard as hearing. I thought I was. <laughs> traumatized from hearing the story. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm gonna move on and ask my last question and get you off of my podcast. You are not welcome back here with those, <laughs> your horrible stories ever again. Um, my my final question is: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Um, that, that I lived, uh, that I, that I did good in my life. Like I would want to be acknowledged for, cause you know, sometimes it's really, um, deflating when you try to do so much good and then, you know, shit things happen to you. Like, I would just like to get there and be like, despite some of the shitty things that happen in life, you did good kid. You did all right. You like, you tried, you helped some people. It was good. Yeah. That's what we all that's what we all want i think what do you want um i would really like for there to be a golden corral buffet and other than that I, i'd like it to really be how they say like here's your cloud and if i can get those two things then i'm good to go like if i if i'm hanging out on a cloud and i can go get some some golden corral hit the chocolate fountain then i'm good you know then have like your own private cloud yeah my own private cloud i need my own my own pc got my own private cloud I'm floating around and yeah we're all in like robes and stuff i, I really <laughs> want it to be the stereotypical version of it and then a golden corral and then i'm set that's all i need so i just I'm, i love it a golden corral will be right it's right over here it opens at 7 30 and then i'm good to go that's all i need golden corral where are you from baltimore, <laughs> from baltimore. I, i've never had one of those i'm i'm, I'm also i'm joking by the way I would never eat at a fucking golden corral in my life. Okay, but it's okay. a. I was like, at least it's yeah, at least it's like, a waffle yeah, yeah, house, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I have some know, standards, like... man. I have some. St- I have standards. It's a joke. I would never want my heaven to have a golden corral in it. <laughs> I, I, I need to clear that but up. It's I don't okay want... if you do. It's, no, you know. I mean... I, oh, you think I, you think I'm you think I'm I'm you know, now I'm embarrassed and I'm lying about it. I've never yeah, even now Maggie. I've never even. I don't even know if golden corral is a real thing. I think I just made the words up. I don't even know if it's That's real. That's what I'm saying. I'm like I don't even know what that is. I just made it up. I don't even think it's a real. Thing. I don't know. I don't eat there all the time. Get out of here. You're not welcome here anymore. Uh, <laughs> Maggie, please take a second before you get out of here. Plug whatever you got coming up. Wrongful Convictions podcast is coming up soon, right? Yes. We are looking at a uh, like March, uh, not March, May 1st launch, I think. So um, if you're already subscribed to the Wrongful Conviction feed, it will be in that feed. You'll just see an episode that says Jason's name and then my name will come up in my episode. So 
keep an eye out for that. Subscribe to Wrongful Conviction. Maggie, thank you so much. Again, I don't, I, I still, I still, I feel like I still owe you another drink. Um, I can't really put into words. I know it probably felt like nothing. I, you, I don't even, like, I can't even pinpoint w- the conversation exactly, but it really did. It kicked us in, it kicked us into high gear, it really made us like focus up and, and start doing more things. So I appreciate you reaching out and it got us to here. So it was really awesome talking to you officially, not, not in a bar. But it was all you guys. It's because you guys are awesome. I could have put you out there and everyone would have been like, fuck these guys. But so it was That's really true. you guys. And Bob so. Ruff did say fuck these guys, but I, I won them over in the end. Um, so I, <laughs> <laughs> I won them over. Did he really? No. Bob is so <laughs> nice. Bob didn't say that. Like, fuck these. I don't know what the hell Maggie's talking about. Fuck these guys. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Maggie, thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome anytime and um thank you again. Yes, thank you so much. This is wonderful.